HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Café Patachou, a student union for adults since 1989 in the heart of Indianapolis. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. Whether it's your favorite day of the season or you avoid it like the plague, there's no debating it's a big day for the world of food and hospitality. Valentine's Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I don't feel that my manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a rosé champagne. It's an old Jamaican drink from way back, and we just decided to bring it back into existence. It's a drink that the men, they believe it really does wonders. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome historian and gastronomist Megan Elias. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Megan about Boston University's Culinary Arts Program, Defining Gastronomy, and we'll hear Julia, we'll hear Megan's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with another inspiration from Julia. We often talk about just how much Julia valued learning, teaching, and culinary training. So naturally, this led Julia to get involved with establishing a formal educational program. So along with Jacques Pepin, they helped their friend Rebecca Alsid start a gastronomy and culinary arts program at Boston University's Metropolitan College right in Julia's backyard. That very program is still going strong, now celebrating its 30th anniversary. Joining us today is Megan Elias, who is the director of, of the gastronomy program at Boston University. There she teaches several food studies courses and, as a cultural historian, is the author of five books, including her latest entitled Food on the Page, Cookbooks and American Culture. Now, given Julia's connection to BU, the foundation has a longstanding relationship with the gastronomy program, supporting students through a grant that enables a series of student awards for academic achievement, as well as teaching fellowships. The foundation is proud of all that BU's gastronomy program has accomplished, and we're delighted to have Megan here today to teach us more about its various components. And beyond BU, we are counting on Megan to help us better understand that very fancy term that's a part of the foundation's name, gastronomy. And that's also a big part of what the foundation does to further Julia's legacy. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. We're glad you made it. 
So let let's start off because uh, you know I think there's will be a wide spectrum of understanding of that VU has a gastronomy program and what it is and it's it's kind of a unique animal in terms of what people might already be familiar with in, in terms of culinary training. So tell us about the different courses and degrees that you can get at, at BU. Okay, so we have, there are sort of two sections uh, to the program. There's the programs in food and wine, which uh, also includes the culinary arts certificate. And then there's the gastronomy master's degree, which is a master of liberal arts in gastronomy. And the two programs are uh, sort of nominally separate, but we work together all the time. So uh, culinary art, the culinary arts program is a one semester culinary training, and that's the hands-on cooking that's uh, all day, every day, learning everything from how to cut a piece of lamb sustainably to profiteroles to all kinds of other deliciousness. Um, And then the gastronomy side is uh, looking at food from a little bit of a distance. So the courses in gastronomy are, are our core courses are anthropology of food, history of food, uh, food in the senses, um, which does have some uh, tasting components as well. Um, and then our, uh, our other uh, core course is the introduction to gastronomy, where we look at how scholars in different academic fields uh, look, look at food and use food to understand the world around us. So the focus of gastronomy is really um, looking at the world through a food lens. Uh, we don't do hard sciences much, and we don't do things like nutrition and dietetics, although a lot of the students who are taking those programs at BU also take our food studies classes just to get a kind of more holistic picture of the stuff that's going to be their career. Yeah, I think that this is where I always get a little bit mixed up because they're very related disciplines, but mm-hmm. they're they're quite different tracks and they're they're different like levels in, in in the educational spectrum. But maybe it would be helpful if you kind of gave an example of the typical student and what they typically do before and a- maybe that's not typical before, but <laughs> after they get the yes. culinary certificate or they get the master's in gastronomy because the, they they tend to st- would put you down distinct paths, mm-hmm. would they not? Or actually, do some people get them together? Yes, many people get them together, which for me is the most wonderful and sort of most Julia thing about our program is that you can take the culinary certificate program and apply eight credits from that program towards the gastronomy master's. So your uh, you, so part of your gastronomy master's degree is a semester of hands-on cooking and cooking with some of the best chefs in, you know, in America, actually, some from the Boston area, and then some come in, like Chef Jim Dodge comes from San Francisco every semester, um, and Jacques Pepin comes in every semester. So you can combine the two, and I think that's um, that's a really unique and wonderful thing about our program. And the I, I love the question about what the typical student sort of is and what they become, because it there is no typical, and that's a very exciting world to to be in. So people come to us, um, some fresh out of college, um, having developed an interest in food, um, and and then some many come after trying something else out. We have a lot of career changers. Um, somebody who you know, some people who are working in fields completely unrelated to food, and then say, "Oh, you know, all I want to do is talk and think about food with other people who feel the same." And then they find us, and we're sort of refuge. Um, others who started on a food track, like who have a food blog already, or who are working in food marketing, but want to want to think about it more deeply than just on the kind of market marketing level or the um, the kind of casual writing level. So we're, I think, we're really. Um, a home for people who want to take their thinking and doing about food um, to a deeper level. And so when they're done, um, if they're done with the culinary arts program, many of them go into working in restaurants. And it's very easy for them to get that work because they've done a lot of stages with our um, our teaching chefs. Um, when they're finished with their master's degree in gastronomy, they do all kinds of things. So they might start their own consulting businesses, um, some examples, one of our graduates went to work for a senator on his food policy. Um, someone else created an app to um, help people who are buying coffee, you know, kind of buying coffee wholesale to figure out all of the variables. You know, do you want it fair trade? Do you want it this flavor profile? Do you want it from this particular uh, region? Um, and she just created the app herself. Um, others go into food journalism. Um, uh, recently a graduate started a 
a, a, a food, um, like a food magazine for women's food writing. Um, so people are really doing everything. And that's what's really exciting um, about being in the program is you don't know what they'll become, but they're going to become something new, you know, something that the world hasn't seen yet in many cases. Great. No, that's really helpful. I think it, because it, it kind of gets confusing because the two tracks are quite distinct, but then right. you can, you know, combine them up together. And then they also have totally different time frames and one's <laughs> a master's program and one's not. But I think that's a good, I think hearing sort of how people make use of degrees either on their own or in tandem is, is, is helpful for people to understand what they are. And also, as you just discussed, all the possibilities. Mm-hmm. So take us through, um, I just think because it's fun, mm-hmm. yeah. to hear um, just a little tidbit of how, how are Julia and Jacques Pepin sort of involved in both the program, and obviously Julia is not anymore, but in its, its origins and, and that, that story, because obviously it's also unique compared yes. to maybe any other culinary program in the country. Yeah, well, I mean, in a very t- two very tangible ways, Julia is with us all the time in the program. Our demonstration kitchen, which is where we invite the public in to see demonstrations by chefs and to eat food prepared by the culinary students and to hear talks by visiting scholars. In that room, there are portraits of both Julia and Jacques, and they they are next to each other on the walls. So the, the two of them are always watching over us. <laughs> and then her, her the stool that she used to sit on when she taught in the program is also in that room. So it's, you know, we always invite people who are visiting, oh, have a seat on Julia's stool. And it's got this wonderful um, way of making people feel at home. You know, you get you get to have the experience of, of sitting with her in a sense. Um, and, you know, and it's quite a tall stool, <laughs> right? So you're reminded of her physical presence, that she was a tall person, right? Um, and then um, intellectually, uh, she's very much with us in that we cultivate a spirit of playfulness um, amidst our very serious studies. We uh, attempt to engage our students in the physical uh, understanding and, and connection to food as well as the, the kind of more cerebral approach. So in every class, we um, we encourage, I encourage faculty to include some kind of experiential element. Um, students are encouraged to take all of our experiential classes, which apart from the, the culinary program, we have a Saturday baking class, we have a Saturday um, cooking class, we have cheese classes and wine classes and beer and spirits classes. And we really encourage our students to, to you know, to sort of, um, I don't know what the, the right metaphor is, but sort of to put their tongues where their minds are or something, right? So don't just read about it, also taste it and also um, get involved in, in the experience of, of making things. Um, we're very much also uh, living the spirit of, of Jacques' ideas too, because his his one of his reasons for starting the program was that he wasn't allowed at Columbia, he was discouraged from writing a dissertation about food in French literature, that at the time he proposed it, it wasn't thought of as a legitimate subject. And so we're we're um, living out his revenge, really, like in a very happy way, <laughs> because we're, we're doing all of that. We would welcome that kind of study. We welcome people studying food in all kinds of ways, all kinds of literatures and experiences. Um, and then also the his idea of what a culinary education required, I think is really radically different from the other culinary programs because it's very short. It's one semester. Um, and he feels that that's enough, that you can get enough from one semester to, to put you into the kitchen as um, a qualified kitchen worker and that the rest is what you learn there in the experience. So I, I feel quite proud of our program because it doesn't put anyone into debt. You know, it's one semester and it gives them all the connections they need to continue on with culinary work if they want. And they, my goodness, they create such wonderful food. I'm the lucky beneficiary of a lot of the leftovers. And I can attest <laughs> to them all being great chefs by the end of the semester. No, I think I think that's a great reminder that, that and especially it, it, it's important to think back 30 years ago, because I think the landscape in terms of culinary education has evolved quite a quite a lot in the last 10 years and the last 30 years. But, it, but at the time, and then to some degree, this is still true, right? The basic nutshell was both Julia and Jock thought that there was this gap that shouldn't be there between practical training and intellectual thinking about food, and that they wanted to create a forum where you could you know, satisfy both itches, if you will, yes. because they thought they belonged together. 
Is that a right way Absolutely. to kind Absolutely, of- yes. I mean, and I think that's one of the most important things about Julia as a historic figure in American culture is that she gave a level of prestige to home cooking that just hadn't existed before. She made it possible for women who did not have professions, although they may have been well-educated, to feel that they were performing something really intellectual in the kitchen. And and for a generation who still didn't have a kind of entree into the professions, that was really important. It was important to feel that 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 kind of everyday housework wasn't just everyday housework, that it was creativity, it was getting in touch with world cultures, it was um, it was it was finding joy as well, right? Finding kind of a kind of self-fulfillment and um, an understanding of yourself that you could make mistakes and continue on, which is, I think, one of her best gifts to American chefs and cooks. Yeah, certainly something we, we talk about a lot on mm-hmm. the podcast. And I think that it's still true that while I think the the rejection that Jacques felt when he was at Columbia about doing doing a real intellectual dissertation about looking at society through the lens of food, or is it the other way, food through the lens? No, no, that's right. And th- that's very much, that arena has grown in terms of acceptance in, in academia. And I would say it's still a growth area, but yes. it's much more accepted than it was 30 plus years ago. Whereas this merger of being able to get an intellectual degree in some facet of food studies and take a hands-on course at the same time at one institution, that's still pretty rare, no? It is, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know of anyone else who has this. The CIA has now um, a BA in food studies, so, so students can do the culinary arts and the BA, but at the master's level, um, I think we're still alone in, in having that, that combination. That's so, I think and, it's so And I'll vital. just footnote for our listeners that in this context, when we talk about oh, the yes. CIA, we're talking about the <laughs> Culinary Institute of America, which right. foodies generally know that that's what you're talking to. But just to clarify, if we're making reference yes. to the CIA, we're generally talking about the Culinary Institute right, of America. Right, right. Though I do, I do wonder about what kind of food, you know, food training goes on at the other CIA. If they're, you know, sort of how to tell if your meal has been poisoned by your counter agent or something, if that's part of their education. <laughs> we'll find out one day. And if only Julia was still around, she might have had she a comment tell us, on that. Right. <laughs> given everyone's obsession with, was Julia a spy? Or uh-huh. And for the record, Julia was adamant that she was never a spy. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but you can split hairs. She might have been privy. She probably did see talk, top secret documentation. And if mm-hmm. to you that makes someone a spy, then fine. I'm not sure. It, it would not give you a high, uh, a high level job at the CIA, right, right, right. I don't think. So maybe you could also just differentiate. We've kind of covered it, but I think it's helpful for other people, particularly if they were thinking about retraining or career changing, depending on where they are in their career. So where would you say that BU kind of falls in the landscape between the CIA mm-hmm. or even just a community college program or NYU's right. food studies program? Can you kind of maybe position it and where yes. you know, where it's maybe more right for someone than than the others? Yeah, so we're, I mean, we're different from the CIA because our culinary program is much, much shorter. Um, so it's less of an investment of time. Um, and our, our non, our, our, so our gastronomy classes, the classes that look at um, food from, in, from academic disciplines, our range is a little broader than the other programs because we include humanities um, approaches, but also entrepreneurship and communications. So we're, I mean, we're very lucky that at BU we have, we can call on our colleagues in the, in the, in the communications college um, and in the school of hospitality administration and in the business school and in the school of nutrition. So our students can take classes across the university that, um, you know, that help them follow a, any particular direction they want to take in food. So if you come into gastronomy with a strong interest in um, in food policy, for instance, you can also take classes in urban affairs. You can take classes in the, um, in the College of General Studies, political science, um, P- School of Public Health. So we have a lot of, although we're, we're kind of... Um, we're, we have a, we're a small program on paper. We're actually quite a big program because of all the resources we can call on. And then on the culinary side, 
we have um, connections across the Boston area with restaurants and purveyors and businesses. Um, one of our professors who teaches a food business class, his family runs a CSA. So they have a, a family farm not far from Boston and students go out to the family farm and understand not just, you know, what cool vegetables there are, but but how do you run something like that? And and why does that matter to the future of food in America? So we have, we have um, I think we have more uh, range across the disciplines and, and, and into other approaches to food than other programs that I know of. I see. And well, maybe this would help too, because I, and I probably should have asked this question first, but I'm asking it now, is I was trying to help because I have to take a breath to keep it straight. Of yeah. the, you know, the difference between just learning to cook yeah. and what studying gastronomy is. Right. So could you tell us more about like what what actually what, what is meant by gastronomy and what is a gastronomist? <laughs> sure. Um, so I should also say that gastronomy is really just a word that we, you know, that applies at BU. Other food studies people haven't picked it up, but I love it. Um, because it really, <laughs> it, it sets us apart in this nice way. So uh, learning to cook, right? So if you're in the culinary arts program and you're just doing the culinary arts certificate, you're learning how to um, how to, to deal with different substances and how to create different kinds of flavor combinations and dishes. Um, to give an example, last week was Meat Week in the culinary arts program. So one day, Chef Chris Douglas came in and taught people how to do all kinds of different w- cooking, you know, ways to cook chicken. And then the next day, it was Chef Michael Leviton teaching people how to do some butchering and then how to prepare beef and pork and lamb and all kinds of different ways. So you learn in the in the cooking class, you learn how to deal with the material. In the gastronomy classes you take a step back from the material first, right? You may return to the material, but you take a step back and you try to understand it in its context. So what is the, you know, if you're, you're taking a, a food policy class, you're going to understand what are, um, what are contemporary policies around uh, poultry production, right? Um, if you're taking a history class, you may end up understanding the role of chicken in uh, the history of Mexican cuisine. If you're taking a food and anthropology class, perhaps you're going to be interviewing. Um, there's a, we have a project of interviewing local uh, local area cooks, home cooks. So you might come to understand how home cooks in the 21st century use chicken, which is going to be really different from the way they used it 100 years or 50 years or even 30 years before, um, just because of the way chickens are processed and sold. But there, so there are a lot of different approaches to food. And one of the, the most wonderful things I think we do, and very much in the spirit of both Jacques and Julia, is if you're taking the culinary arts program and you want to apply that program towards a gastronomy degree, you also write some papers that give you a way to find the context for the food that you're actually making every day in class. Um, and just a simple example of one of those assignments is you choose a historical recipe, so something from 100 years before or, or longer ago, and you try to recreate it in your own home kitchen. And then you have to write about what worked and what didn't work and why you think it didn't work and why, you know, what, what you would have to adapt to make it a contemporary recipe. And through that, you learn a world of things. You learn about changes in technology. You learn about changes in the food, you know, food supply systems, changes in taste and culture and fashion. Um, and changes across, you know, across cultures, right, that that maybe 100 years ago an American cookbook would, would never have had a recipe that was identified as Thai. But if you, you know, you look into your own contemporary cookbooks, you would you would probably find some Thai chicken dish today. Sorry, I don't know why I got stuck on chickens, but there they are. <laughs> They're fascinating. We just did chickens a couple episodes ago oh, good. with MoFat. So. I, it's it, to mo, to regular listeners, it will be obvious why chickens are so fascinating, and <laughs> the and are they there. do do that. So, I mean, I kind of think of it like culinary arts is the doing, uh-huh. and gastronomy is the thinking, and yes. then you can merge them together. And as much as we possibly can in the program, we blend the two. So we want, you know, I never want to say that what happens in the kitchen is not intellectual, right? Because it is, yeah. right? And I never yeah, want to say that what happens outside of the kitchen can't involve the hands-on too. Um, and in some ways, that's that's really the best way to understand, you know, um, if you're doing an anthropology of food, to go and cook with people is a way to understand what their um, what their experience is. And if you're if, certainly if you're doing food history, 
sometimes the only way to understand what happened, what was going on in a kitchen is to try it yourself. You're never going to succeed in doing it exactly the way it was done, but you learn a lot from the, from the impossibilities. Well, and I also wanted to make that distinction right because gastronomy includes culinary history, mm-hmm. but they're not synonyms, right? No, 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 no. Um, so, and and I guess back to that question about what a gastronomist is, um, gastronomy is thinking about food across disciplines. So we um, we require students to use lots of different disciplinary approaches to food and to discover which is the right one for them. So if you, in the introductory class, you read some anthropologists, you read some archaeologists, you read philosophers and sociologists and historians, and you see how different disciplinary approaches teach us different things about food, and you figure out what your position is there. And for a lot of students, the position is an entrepreneurial one. Um, so for many of my, you know, my final assignments in the intro class, people are writing business proposals, um, but they're writing a business proposal that's, that also has a really uh, rigorous literature review. So they've got, you know, the history of this kind of business, um, some, you know, some other kinds of, of uh, academic approaches to that, to that, to questions of why the business needs to exist and all of that. But, um, and also I should say, I keep leaving out the, the communications track that we have um, a lot of opportunities for students to, um, to write um, and to, um, find new new media ways to represent what they're learning in gastronomy and, and represent what's going on in the culinary arts at, at the time as well. Well, that's super helpful because obviously as a foundation who has, um, so for those who need a reminder, we're the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And, jo- and that was very deliberate and I think has a lot of origins in Julia's experience in BU's program in that it's covering all of those bases. And obviously gastronomy is slightly, everyone knows it's related to food mm-hmm. and it's very broad, uh-huh. which is I think why it's a little bit hard to grasp onto. But yeah. I think for us, it's really important because there are not a lot of people like like us at the foundation who, uh, who are working in the gastronomy space and it's right. growing, but it, it's, it's an important one. And I like that thinking about food across disciplines, that's really easy to remember. And I would say that you are, you are a gastronomist mean that you are, you know, the people that you talk to, you're, ta- you're thinking about food across disciplines as well, right? I like also the, 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 uh, the sense, the kind of echo of the, um, the, the gastronomer is, is like a, a kind of a traveler across long distances, which in this case are, are disciplinary or intellectual. But I like the idea of, of, of uh, the field as, some, as something kind of in motion and, and traveling. Our students I'm call themselves gastronauts. Can I, get, can, can I get away with adding gastronomer to my like title intro? Executive director and gastronomer. Absolutely. Gonna, gonna, I'll, yes. to, oh, <laughs> I'll say it's validated by by BU. So, <laughs> and they gave right, me that title. G- I never claimed it. It was just added onto my um my web, my you know my faculty webpage. They they designated me gastronomer. And I said, oh my god, I will definitely take that. <laughs> All right. Well, I might have to get a letter from you, you know, giving me the authority to use it. (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And afterwards, we're going to talk to Megan about her latest book, Charting the History of American Cookbooks, and also about the importance of lunch. What do you think about gastronomy now that we've talked all about it? Is studying food and society important to you? Should it be important to everyone? Send us an email or even a voice memo and even include, if you think you're a fellow gastronomer, to contact at juliachildfoundation.org to let us know what you think. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Café Patachou. Long described as a student union for adults, Café Patachou is an award-winning café serving world-class breakfast and lunch in the heart of Indianapolis. Created by Martha Hoover, Café Patachou began as a mission to open a restaurant that used the best local ingredients prepared expertly. What Martha would cook for her own family was exactly what she wanted for her restaurant guests. Café Patachou has since grown into a restaurant group and the Patachou Foundation. And while Martha is no longer in the kitchen whisking three eggs per omelette anymore, she is still spreading her passion for premium local ingredients, now in several concepts and locations. Learn more at patashuinc.com. That's P-A-T-A-C-H-O-U dot com. 
Welcome back. We are talking to cultural historian, professor, and director of the gastronomy program at Boston University, Megan Elias. All right, Megan, I want you, because you also do all these other fascinating things in addition to running the program, particularly in the sort of culinary history space and gastronomy space. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about that in your most recent book, which is called Food on the Page, Cookbooks in American Culture, which seems to trace about more than 200 years of published American cookbooks and kind of comes to this point that I think is a very big one, that while there are thousands of recipes represented by those books, it's actually about a lot more than that. So maybe talk to us a little bit about some of your big findings. Sure. Um, So it was a really interesting book to write because I didn't know what I was going to find as I was going along. I had some ideas about what what had been trends in cookbooks, um, but I had this feeling that cookbooks were speaking um, sort of the, the character of a culture or the soul of a culture. I originally meant for the book to just be about the turn of the century, the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th, because that's a period that really interests me um, and is a turning point in a lot of ways in food history. But it really, it extended and extended, and um, it's, it, yeah, it covers a lot of ground. Um, so some of the things that I that I found that were really interesting was this um, this thing about, about uh, community cookbooks, which was that they Community cookbooks are, you know, they're um, created by groups of women who um, created them usually for charitable functions. And um, they're, the, they're the first time that, that women have a kind of collective voice in American culture. So they're really important for that reason. Um, but I found that they weren't really telling me about regional specialties. What they were telling me about was a, a national middle class food culture, which I found fascinating um, because it's something that I think we still have um, and that is represented in our many of our cookbooks today, um, but that isn't represented in the same collective way anymore now that everybody has their own blog. So there's there really aren't community cookbooks in the same way there used to be as kind of the voice of a community that then turns out actually to be the voice of a much larger community. So I found you could understand food fashions that way. Um, and, and you would have to look at, look differently for, for food fashions. Now I think we would look for, look to restaurant menus primarily and the best selling cookbooks, but you could see for the turn, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century, you could see food fashions through the recipes that women included in their cookbooks. And that kind of lasts all the way up through the fifties and sixties. Um, most, most schools, you know, um, church groups would put out a community cookbook and and you can you know if you know your food fads you know when you're going to see cream of broccoli soup and you know when you're going to see quiche and you know so you just get this you can you can tell what's going to be in there if you know what the national food trends were so that was really interesting for me it originally kind of disappointing like oh my god i'm not going to learn the secrets of delaware cooking it's <laughs> promised by the title of this book but it turned out like the secret of delaware cooking is that the people, the women, the middle class women of Delaware mm-hmm. want to cook like everybody else, you know, and they're just trying to find out what that means. I see. Yeah. And do community cookbooks in terms of maybe not the first ones that appear, but in terms of their popularity or as a significant kind of cultural reference point, historical reference point, do they predate the women's right to vote? I think they do. Oh, yes. Yeah, they do. In fact, one of the, the most interesting cookbooks is a, is the women's suffrage cookbook which was to raise money for the suffrage cause. So they're, yeah, they're a way for women to be involved in public life that was new. Um, and, and, you know, really fascinating that women chose the culinary voice as a way to enter into the public. It was a safe way. You know, it was, you weren't, you weren't um, apparently abandoning your domestic responsibilities. You were just kind of amplifying them. But it also became a way for, for an individual woman to have a kind of measure of fame in her community, right? She's got the... You know, she's put in that recipe for the really um, luxurious dish. So people know she's got the means and she's got the talent to make that kind of dish. Or more likely, she's got the, the domestic help to help her make that kind of dish. But whatever it was, it was a kind of a level of, um, of, uh, of sophistication and importance that women could, could kind of present themselves as having. And I think that, you know, that really is... It comes out again in the era of, of Julia, of mastering the art of French cooking, that that book, again, allowed women to put themselves forward in their communities as knowledgeable, you know, as connoisseurs of something. Um, and and that so that leads to another thing that was really interesting for me to discover was this whole period of, 
um, the, the early days of Gourmet Magazine and um, the cookbooks that came out around the, the 1930s, just before Gourmet began in the 1940s and early 50s, there was this whole bunch of cookbooks um, that were written by men and that argued that men were actually really good cooks and women were not. And so this, this period of creating the idea of this, the, the um, passionate masculine chef. And so that then when Julia comes along, there, it's, it's complicated, but there's this new kind of identity that women get to access through her book, which is the chef as not just a little housewife, but a, an, an important cultural figure. Um, the home chef, I should say. There's a totally other history of, of, of professional chefs. Um, but the, the idea that, that cooking really well was um, something that even men could be interested in, right? So that then when Julia is helping women to achieve those skills, they can kind of jump up the social ladder um, in this, this really interesting way, almost by claiming a masculine identity. So it's complicated, but really it was so surprising to me to find what, what were essentially a bunch of misogynistic cookbooks. Well, and right, what you're saying about Julia, that Julia always was sort of ambivalent about was, you know, was she a feminist? But I think what you're saying is oh, yes. mastering, mastering the art of French cooking helped empower women to sh- represent their knowledge and skill in a level on par yeah. to professional chefs? Is that kind of, and it kind of gave that permission? Is that what you're referencing? Yeah, or not even professional chefs, but professional men. So artists and writers and, um, you know, intellectuals. Uh, it's, it's really, it's a kind of a f- amazing moment when cooking is presented as intellectual culture. And so for a woman to be able to master that, and that is the important word, right, mastering, um, she, she becomes, she, she enters into, I guess that would be a better way to put it, she enters into this kind of community that wasn't previously available to her. So it's not not feminism, but it's a parallel, right? It's, it's okay, feminism is not available to you at your age and in your place, but here's this other way of accessing cultural authority. Well, and it elevates your status uh, as a person. Yes. Um, which is particularly significant, right, at a time where so many affluent women, at least, were, were, were made to go to university and then stay at home. And Yes, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the wonderful story, um, uh, Betty Fussell's uh, great memoir, there, there's just fantastic parts in there about what Julia did for her, how Julia empowered her um, to, be a, to compete with her husband in the domestic sphere. Yeah, I know. And I think all of this stuff that Julia was very unaware of, she was just sort of following her passion. And I think because maybe we talk about the fact that she had a tremendous partner who was not intimidated by her and was enlightened in terms of how the dynamics of a marriage could work. And maybe that's because he was raised by a single mother. But, you know, he he, he didn't shut that down and he enabled it. And that just, you know, their partnership was important, but it also kind of enabled Julia to kind of maybe go farther with with things at the time, at least. Oh, exactly. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly right, that he had a, a very open concept of what his partner would be and really saw her as a, as a partner and not as, you know, the wife with kind of prescribed ideas of what that means. Well, and that old adage, you know, behind every every good man is a great woman, it, it, mm-hmm. it applies exactly <laughs> in reverse. Although yes. I guess there, there are single people through history who have made great accomplishments as well. We can just say there's a great meal behind every great person. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, let's hope so. Or let's hope there will yeah. be. Um, so I, <laughs> there's so much more to talk about on that. We could do a whole podcast on that. But uh, we'll look for an upcoming excuse. So because I'm also <laughs> fascinated, I just think that there's a certain humor in it, although I know it's very serious. So I want you to take <laughs> us through this. But you wrote a book about lunch. And I've never thought, thought oh, about yes. writing a book it's about lunch, funny. but you did it. So, <laughs> so what, what do we learn from from thinking intellectually about lunch? Oh, yes. Um, so I, I was so obsessed with the idea of writing this book. And, and now it's a little hard for me to understand what the urgency was. Um, <laughs> no one but, had done it. But it was, yeah. But I still notice. I mean, I notice lunch because it's the public meal. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. Um, and why I feel like I could actually just sit down and write another whole book about lunch is that it's the food that people see us eating. And here I am sitting in your studio watching people actually eat at Roberta's eating pizza. Um 
And here, in some ways, they've come to be seen eating food at Roberta's, right? So it's, um, there's people taking pictures of their pizza, actually, at the moment, which they're no doubt Instagramming to friends to show them where they've been. But it is a meal um, that is, is global. It is um, the meal. So it's the meal that has to happen, it seems, um, throughout history. It's the, th- the thing, because it comes in the middle of the day, that really can't be missed. Um, so if you look back through history, there, breakfast is a kind of new thing. Um, and, and supper was always just a little something before you go to bed. But lunch, the middle of the day meal, was the thing that had to happen. So this is where, um, you know, some of our the world's favorite foods kind of appear, right? The the breads and cheeses and and the kind of porridges that you add a little this and a little that to. Um, so it uh, it it also you know it's come to have so many meanings: the power lunch and the um, the takeout lunch and the the lunch. Um, you know, the, the lunch rooms and schools and school lunches themselves, it has a whole politics. So it, it's really quite a large subject, um, which, yeah, and of course, lunch is not, lunch is a kind of recent term for it. So midday meal might be, you know, if you think of it that way, you can see how many, um, how many stories it can tell. I see. And what, what's been, I mean, what's been sort of the reaction to it? Have you gotten feedback of other people oh. saying, oh, my God, I'm really into lunch? And <laughs> I wish, I really wish that had happened. <laughs> um, it didn't happen so much. Um, I'm afraid it, my book about lunch came out just about the same time, awkwardly, as the wonderful book about brunch by my friend Farha Ternikar. And people were much more taken with talking about brunch because it was a brunch was having a revival at the moment. Um, so I think lunch got a little bit, <laughs> a little bit overshadowed by the thrill of brunch. Um, and they're so close, right? They're, they're similar ideas. Um, but I, yeah, I, I feel as if I could teach a whole course about, um, about lunch or, you know, and you, you, there are, um, if you're interested, if people are interested in lunch, there are lots and lots of blogs where people post their lunch. It seems like something that people want to share with the rest of the world. And there are, there's a fantastic um, website about school lunches around the world that gets updated periodically. People are really, not only is it a meal that we're sort of forced to eat in public, but then it's a meal that people want to make public as well, much more than their breakfasts or dinners. Yeah, I see. Well, hopefully we've renewed people's um, thoughtfulness about lunch and, and, and looking into it because <laughs> it's certainly a part of everyone's day. And certainly Julia was very, you know, felt the lunch break and sitting down and taking that break was vital. Oh, it is. I mean, people fought for it, right? We've, the labor movement has fought for breaks. Um, and yeah, I think it's worth it every time you sit down to sort of think, where am I? Who am I with? Why am I doing this? What am I eating? Um, you know, a lot of us are still like, like me, uh, still eating at my desk. Um, but now I'm, I'm often eating at my coworker's desk. She likes to, what she calls picnic, um, in the middle of the day. So at the gastronomy program, you can often find us having, having our lunch at our desks, but together at our desks. So it's quite nice. (laughs) Great. We're back up on our thoughtfulness about lunch. So I also wanted to ask you, I heard a rumor that you were putting together something or thinking of putting together or trying to put together a food <laughs> podcast colloquium. But I don't, what is that? Yes. Or what would it be? Well, yes. So I wrote a grant for it, which I'm just crossing all my fingers I will get. Um, and my idea is that food podcasting is just this flourishing genre at the moment. And it's time to get food podcasters to sit down and talk about why food podcasting is a different kind of food media from all the other existing medias and what kinds of stories um, you can tell um, that can't be told in other kinds of media. Because I think I think podcasting itself lends itself to a much more thoughtful consideration of um, any subject than, you know, a, a sort of regular radio show. Um, and, and it has kind of more reach, too, than a blog these days. So I wanted to get practitioners together to talk about the genre and where they think it might be going, and then also to include a kind of workshop event where people who are interested in starting podcasts can learn about what it takes, you know, what, what are the technical requirements um, and the intellectual requirements? How do you, you know, how do you keep it going, which I think is really a difficult question in podcasting, and um, 
just to get a community of people who appreciate food podcasting to share their ideas and to think about where it goes next. Because I think it's a really vital um, medium right now. Well, we're, we heartily support that. So that sounds really <laughs> great. And I, I'm also thinking you could even do a podcast on a podcast colloquium. It's that versatile. Oh, yes. Of course. <laughs> we'll have to have everybody podcasting from the podcast, right? Yeah, you could have, maybe you could have a podcast-a-thon. I'm not sure how that works, but it sounds good. Oh, yeah, that would be great. And anything else that is, is there, are there any more? I know there was a big dinner at the sort of to kick it off. Are there any more big events coming up for yeah. the BU Gastronomy or it's just a sort of daily celebration? Um, well, so it's Culinary Arts' 30th. Gastronomy still has to wait till 2021 for the 30th of, of that program, but we're all celebrating together. And I think that the next event that's planned for the Culinary Arts is going to be a uh, kind of um, a homecoming and a reunion for our for the culinary arts graduates, which will also include a lot of gastronomy graduates. So to get everybody who can come back back into the space, um, back you know with chefs cooking in the cooking um, around in the kitchen, different stations and something like that, and so to bring us all kind of back together to um, to appreciate the 30 years of what Jacques and Julia and Rebecca created and to think about the future too, to think about what's, you know, what can the graduates tell us about what's needed um, for students going forward. Great. Well, it, I didn't realize there would be two yeah. chances for a 30th celebration. Oh, yes. Isn't that it great? Is. <laughs> All right. After the break, Megan's going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Andrew Friedman, and I'm the host of Andrew Talks to Chefs here on HRN. Every week, I interview a diverse cross-section of the best and biggest names in professional cooking. Give a listen and get to know all about the inner lives of chefs. You can find Andrew Talks to Chefs wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Megan, what's your Julia moment? Okay, so um, many years ago, I was working in a bookstore in California, Northern California, and Julia came to sign cookbooks. And I was not a food historian yet. I was a recent college graduate who was just working in a bookstore trying to figure out what my life held for me. And she came in, and I was working at a desk. Um, it was a, a bookstore that stayed open until 11 at night. And I was working my, my night shift and she was signing books and there was a very long line and the event had been supposed to end at about eight o'clock, but it <laughs> didn't because she sat there and she kept signing the books. And I, she had been, you know, a figure in my childhood growing up. My mother had cooked from her book. I had cooked from her book. Um, and I never had a chance because I was working to go over and say anything to her, but I was so amazed by her fortitude and her enthusiasm that she just stayed to meet every single person who wanted to meet her because she knew how important it was to make people feel heard when they said that food was important to them and that that cooking mattered in their lives and that they appreciated being able to learn from somebody and the experience of feeling like you were cooking with her when you read her book. So I was just I was just struck no other no other author would stay three hours past, you know, the, the end date, the end time for their signing, but that she was doing it out of a commitment to her community of home cooks. And I really loved that. Well, and to point out, she, I w- was guessing, was at least 70 or plus at that time. Oh, yes, yes. She was not a spring chicken anymore. Yeah, no, she, but she had remarkable stamina and she had those one of those personalities where she actually got energy from other people, but there are people like that who will not devote that. But she, she, that, that, that's great that you got to experience that firsthand. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was really interesting because I didn't know that I was, you know, I didn't know what I was going to go on to do. And I can't say that that was the moment I decided to become a food historian um, at all, but it, it really stuck with me as I thought about, 
um, really as I thought about writers and their role in the world. And do you know that she understood herself to have a responsibility to the community of readers too? That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Megan. You're welcome. It was lovely. And thanks to everyone for listening. A reminder that we hope you're following us on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. Want to be a culinary historian, food writer, or a professional chef? Know someone who does? Check out BU's gastronomy program at bu.edu forward slash gastronomy. You can even peek behind the scenes on social. Their handle is at BU Food and Wine. And Megan's book is Food on the Page, Cookbooks and American Culture by Megan J. Elias from the University of Pennsylvania Press. If you want to keep up with Megan, she's at Megan J. Elias on Twitter and at Meg Elias on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.